full of grace, amazing grace to be able to carry us in our time of need, take care of us. It's why we're part of a church, and it's part of what we've been talking about since the beginning of the year. I started in January, first Sunday, just open to you, saying, dear church, what are we doing here? There are reasons that we're here. What is this all about? And I hope you've been feeling that I've been trying to impress. We're not here just for this, just for this hour or so on a Sunday morning that life and church and Jesus are so, so much more than this experience this morning. I want to just briefly, if you missed a few weeks, if you missed because it snowed or you yet couldn't be here, I briefly just want to review what we've talked about. First of all, church is a community, but it's not just a, the temporal community that we're a part of. We are part of an eternal community. It's an eternal kingdom. That's forever. And this kingdom has a real king. He's alive. We've sung songs about Jesus being resurrected to life this morning. He's alive. He is the supreme God over the entire universe. That should resonate in our hearts and mean something to us. And being part of uh, a local church is like being part of an embassy, an outpost, if you will, for his kingdom. We heard from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning about we are ambassadors. And that is a great, great illustration for us. We are ambassadors here in this local embassy for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is an importance to belonging to a local church. And do we take that earnestly? Do we take that seriously? Do we live it seriously beyond these walls when we leave this place every Sunday morning? We talked about that. We talked about how being devoted is important, being devoted to one another. It's part of the community. It's part of why we're here, and that's the word fellowship that's in the uh, second chapter of the book of Acts, that the disciples were devoted to fellowship, devoted to one another. They cared for one another, and they were also devoted to prayer. They talked to God. They wanted direction from Jesus, And these were the marks of the earliest church, the first church, the first local church, the church in Jerusalem. And speaking of marks, we discussed that as followers of Jesus, those who yield to what he has asked, we have entered a covenant. We've entered a covenant with him, and it's not a temporary covenant. Again, it's eternal. Jesus died to make it so. He's given his life. He died on a cross. And he makes this offer to receive eternal life to every single person. Do you want to deal with sin that separates you from eternal life? If so, well, we need to receive this offering that Jesus has made for our sin. Again, we read it and heard it this morning. He who knew no sin became sin for us 
so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for it. He paid the penalty. He paid the fine for sin. It was an offering. It was a gift that he freely gave. And to receive the gift, Jesus invites you to turn away from sin in a word he invites you to repent and to open the door to this covenant with him, this bond with him, where his promises for eternal life, they become yours. You know, then Jesus asks you to receive a mark, the mark of the covenant. And we discussed it. This, it's like a signature on a contract, if you will. Jesus makes, uh, marks us as receiving his covenant when we're baptized. And we may not fully understand it, but baptism, the word of God explains to us, leaves an internal mark on the heart. It's the sign of the new covenant in Christ's blood, and it's compared to Old Testament circumcision, which was a mark in the flesh. But this mark, this mark of baptism, is a, it's an inner mark, a mark on the inner man. The Bible describes it as a circumcision of heart. No one sees it. I can't see it in your heart, and you can't see it on mine. But we discussed people can see it by the way that we portray Christ in our life, that they see something different and perhaps even have come up to say, what, what makes you so different? And I have heard those testimonies from more than one person here in this congregation that people have actually done this, walked up to them and said, why are you different? And one example, why don't you swear? That was one, there's somebody leaving a mark. And another, why are you so happy? Why are you smiling all the time? Well, the answer was Jesus. He's left this mark. No one sees it unless you live out that mark. So we discuss living as people who've been uh, marked by Christ and being in covenant with him. Then we advance that further. Do we see others as needing Jesus? And that's very important. Dear church, what are we doing here unless we see others as needing eternal life that we're so grateful to have received? And that brings us to what we discussed last week. We discussed not being complacent, living and basking in all the glories and the blessings of the new covenant, but closing them off to others and not letting others in. The church, we are chosen, royal. We are holy, God's special possession, but we're called to a purpose. We have been called to declare the wonderful light of Jesus Christ that should be given to a lost and dying world. And to that end, we concluded last week with a call to prayer. Our last time together last week, we closed echoing a prayer from the earliest believers, and that prayer is, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And many of you responded. The hands went up, and people stood up and said, yes, I will do that. I will pray that prayer for 2019. I will pray, Lord, make me, enable me, Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. So many of you responded. And I want to put that 
uh, prayer into a little bit of context for us and talk about it a little bit deeper this morning. I want to put it in the context of that first church, that church in Jerusalem. Why were they praying such a prayer? Well, their leaders, Peter and John, the apostles, they had been arrested by the leaders of the Jews. They had been uh, tossed into jail, and they had been threatened. What are you doing talking about this Jesus? We don't want you talking about this Jesus anymore. And they held them in jail, and when they released them, they threatened them even more. No more discussions about Jesus. Stop with this. So let's read now. This is the backstory. Let's read a little bit now about how this came together, because after they were released, they prayed. This is Acts chapter 4. It's verses 23 to 29. And it reads this way. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So here their prayer begins. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So there was their prayer. This prayer, Lord, enable me. Lord, give me that power. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness is not some trivial prayer. It's an audacious prayer. It was prayed in the face of opposition. It was prayed in the face of threats of persecution. Lord, they prayed, consider their threats. Consider how we are being threatened against by our enemies and give us great boldness. So what is the connotation here of this word boldness? It's not just somebody who's blustery and uh, somebody who's got a, a, a big personality. No, this connotation of boldness here is fearlessness. It's a connotation of being intrepid, having an unflinching confidence to speak the word of God regardless of who you're talking to. In our 21st century country here, and, and in this culture, what are we afraid of? Who's coming against us here this morning? We all stood up and we raised our hands. We praised Jesus. There's no one coming in here telling us to stop it. We're not being intimidated and threatened and our lives being threatened like those first believers. Oh, yeah, our families and our coworkers, they might think we've gone off the deep edge. I was talking with someone yesterday who said, yeah, my family thinks we're holy rollers. So, yeah, they've been calling us holy rollers. Well, I, yeah, we hear those things. You're a kook. Yeah, you're a holy roller. You're, uh, well, you're weak because you have to believe in this, this being. Yes, 
We've heard all those things. We may have been insulted. But let's not put that on the level of death threats and uh, actual beatings. Let's not put that on the level of what Peter and John and these first apostles were going through. In the very next chapter, Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are arrested again along with the other apostles. And they're thrown into prison and they're told this, we give you strict orders not to teach in that name, that name Jesus. And then they were flogged. Now, I've never been flogged for talking about Jesus. So they were facing real uh, persecution. What are we afraid of? What are our fears? What holds us back from being bold, from telling others, you can have eternal life in Jesus Christ? What do we fear? Do Do we fear inadequacies? Are we afraid of failure? Are we afraid of being called a holy roller? Are we frightened to just step out of our places of comfort? Just consider it yourself. Consider it in your own heart. What holds you back? What holds you back? And consider it as you pray this prayer, this audacious prayer. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. If that's your prayer and and you sincerely stood up and said, that is my prayer, then consider anything that might be holding yourself back. If you said that I am in and you said I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it my prayer for 2019, let's talk about what this prayer implies. There are some implications in this prayer for all of us who are praying it. And I want to address a few of them this morning. First, it implies that we have a desire, that we have a desire founded in love and founded on love to see a need, to see a need in others for salvation. There is this implication in this prayer that we truly have this desire. We want this. We have a desire founded on love to see a need for salvation in others. To say that we want to speak the word of God boldly is to say we are seeing others that they're lost and that they need Jesus just like we did. It was the will of Jesus. It was the desire of his heart, which was completely, completely founded on love. To see others. He saw others always in need. He ever saw others in need of salvation, in need of eternal life. And let me just touch on a few examples where Jesus saw this. In John chapter 4, it's a, a familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus happened upon a woman at a well. And she was not a Jew. And she had had five husbands. And she was at that present time, living with another man. And Jesus struck up a conversation with this woman and asked for a drink. Well, there was tension in this situation. There was gender tension. Jesus approaching and talking to a woman in that culture, it was, it was something that was going to cause tension. There was racial tension. 
Jesus approached a woman who was not a Jew. She was a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. This was not the norm. The woman, she mentioned the impropriety of it all. She said, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How is it that you ask me for a drink? Even his own disciples, when they came upon the situation where Jesus and this woman were talking, it says they were surprised that he was talking to a woman. Well, now through the conversation, we learn that this woman had five husbands and that she was living with a man. Now, just pull that forward to today. Now you happen upon somebody like that, somebody who looks different than you, somebody who speaks differently than you, someone who's had five husbands, and now they're living with someone. What are you going to be thinking? Ah, oh, man, oh, whew. This is going to be nothing but trouble. I know it's going to be nothing but trouble. I can't get involved in such a mess. I mean, some people just never learn. They just never learn. I know if I try anything at all, and it's going to fall on deaf ears. Come on, five husbands? What am I going to be able to say to help this person? But what did Jesus, what did Jesus do? When he met this Samaritan woman with the five former husbands, his purpose was founded on love. He saw her through eyes of love, lenses of love, and he saw a soul in need. And he said to her, I'll give you living water. He offered her living water, salvation. Another example, in Luke chapter 19, we read about Jesus coming upon a city, and there was a person outside that was universally hated, hated by everyone. That, that's tough to do. You know, usually people take sides. But this person, universally hated, a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. And the, the title chief tax collector was synonymous with sinner. You read that in the New Testament, Tax collector, sinner. Tax collector, sinner. They were just thrown together with the sinners because they were often cheaters, taking more than they should. Who else could they associate with? Their group was just tax collectors. That was it. They had nobody else. Now, think about somebody in our time that might be universally hated. Perhaps you might meet someone who admits they're a drug dealer. Now they cause all kinds of pain and trouble in people's life. Who could associate with such a person? Who could associate with that person but, you know, they're drug dealers? Well, what do we do? We turn our backs. What did Jesus do when he met the universally hated person? He said, I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house today. He saw a soul destined for hell. But at the end of the day, because Jesus saw this soul in need of salvation through the lenses of love, he said, today, salvation has come to this house. Another example. Jesus met a man who was a criminal. He was an admitted thief. And he had been tried for his crimes, convicted. 
and he had been sentenced to execution. Now, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, tells us about this thief. He hurled insults at Jesus. As he received his sentence, this thief being crucified, nailed to a cross. See, Jesus met the man at his own execution. They were, they were nailed to a cross on the same day, crucified together. And this man begins to hurl insults at Jesus. But as the hours go by, as they're hanging on the cross, we read that this thief changes his tune. Hanging there in agony, his attitude changes. And he said, hey, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm guilty of my crimes. But you, Jesus, what have you done? Now, have you ever met someone who was less than reputable, eh, maybe a criminal? They mistreated you? They despised you? Now picture yourself in the worst possible pain of your entire life. You're in agony. Are you going to hear that person? Are you going to listen to that person? Are you going to see that person? Will you see that person through eyes of love? Jesus' eyes of love did not dim even while he hung in agony on a cross. There with nail, nails in his hands and nails in his feet. Even after being flogged and a crown of thorns had been beaten into his head. Jesus saw a soul in need of salvation. He saw a soul that needed to come from death to life. Literally, they're dying. And he said, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, if we are to pray the audacious prayer, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, then let's truly be his servant. And let's see every person in need of Jesus as Savior. When you look in the mirror every morning, do you see a face for whom Jesus died on the cross? I do. I look in the mirror and I see someone that needed salvation. And if you believe you're looking at a face when you look in the mirror of someone who needed that blood sacrifice of Jesus, doesn't it follow that every other person that we see during the day is a face of someone for whom Jesus died on a cross? Well, what makes me so special? that I would keep Jesus all to myself. Did he die just for me? I can't look in the mirror and say, thank you, you did it just for me. Absolutely not. He died for all, every single person. And when we see those faces throughout the day and we see a soul, or do we see a soul in need of eternal life? Have a desire have a desire founded on love to see the need for salvation, to see souls. And as you look around this room, like I said last week, and you see a seat that's empty, see a soul indeed. And be inspired to get out of these walls. 
to boldly speak the word of God. Now, I have a second implication of praying this prayer. When we pray, enable me to speak your word with boldness. The need is that we know the word. There's an implication if we pray the prayer that we know the word. Now, many people talk boldly, but they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, that's just fact. And I, I'm reminded of this uh, from my own life. Years ago, when I was working in the software industry, I worked for over a dozen years for a software company here in Detroit where we worked on engineering software to be used in mainly the auto industry, at least here around Detroit, but it could be used in any industry. And I was, uh, I was contracted out to one of the auto companies where I would use this product that we created, and I was kind of getting tired of that. So I went into the office one day and I talked to the, the boss and I said, listen, I'm not really loving this, but I, I've had this inkling that maybe I could get involved with training. He said, all right, we, we made a deal, and it worked out great, and I was able to go to the office, which was in St. Clair Shores, and I loved it, and I didn't have to drive to these, uh, to, out to the auto companies anymore. And very soon, very quickly, he said, listen, we've got a training class. You've got to go to San Jose, California, to Hewlett-Packard. And I said, great, let's go. Put me on the plane, I'm gone. And I was looking forward to it, but let me tell you, I didn't know what I was talking about. All right, I got I'll never forget this. I was from the auto background. Before coming to that company, I'd spent a lot of time in uh, uh, stamping plants, manufacturing plants. I understood automotive production and assembly, and uh, this was kind of what our product was to do, work on things that were assembled. But here I am at Hewlett Packard where they make printers, at least this division. You know, printers are different than cars. But if you kind of walk in front of a group and you think you, you know, you know it all, and you're gonna tell them a thing or two, and you don't really know much about the printers. Now, you know, you, you know, I thought I knew the product pretty well. But the application I failed miserably. Let me just tell you, I, I wanted to get back on that plane and come to Detroit with a bag over my head. I didn't want to do this again ever. And I thought, too, I might be fired from the, from the reviews I got from that training class. There was one guy there, I'll never forget him. He had worked for Ford before he went out to California, and he came over, and he's like, listen, it's okay, it's all right. And he was nice. Uh, but, yeah, I disappointed. I, they, they deserved to get their money back. That's how bad it was. That's how much I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, let me tell you, I had changed my attitude. I changed my tune, because soon after, I got the call again. Hey, listen, Visger, you got to go back to California. I was like, no way. <laughs> They're sending me to Seagate. Seagate made hard drives. And uh, I thought, okay. Before I go on this, 
Give me a hard drive. I got to crack it open and take a look at it. I got to call people, find out how do, they, how do they assemble these things? They're so intricate and small. You know, I had to prepare. That's just the word. You know, I needed to know what I was talking about. And once I did, and I did this then, I, I, I got called to go to many different places from uh, places like uh, Moline where they were John Deere harvesters. A harvester's a lot bigger than a hard drive, okay? So, yep, hey, I gotta get on the phone. How do they assemble these things? Can you send me some information? You need to know how you're applying things, right? So we need to know the word of God, and we need to know how it applies in uh, people's lives. See, Peter knew what he was talking about when it came to the word of God, and that was obvious, See, look at how much he quoted it in his first message, Acts chapter 2. I mean, he didn't have a scroll. He didn't have a Samsung Galaxy phone. He didn't have an iPad. No, he had the Word of God in him. And now he needed to make application because there was a crowd of people that were all excited in Jerusalem. So what did he do? He started going through his mind and his heart where the Word of God had already been deposited What do I need to apply to this situation? Joel chapter 2. Let me tell you, this is what's going on here. People, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Joel prophesied this, and it's happening. And then he quoted Psalm 16, and he quoted Psalm 110. The word was in him, and he understood how to make some application. Then we look at this prayer in Acts chapter 4. What were the people praying? They prayed God's word. They prayed God's word directly from Psalm number two. Lord, they prayed, you spoke through your servant David. Well, what what did David say? They knew what David said, Psalm number two. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? They knew the word. It was in them. They weren't just walking in front of a group of people, you know, all cocky, like, yeah, I can do this, without really knowing it. If we're gonna pray, God, Help us to speak your word boldly. Let's know the word. Continue to get the word inside of you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know every application. You know, you can always rely on God to help, of course. But like I said so many times, people can speak boldly and they don't know what they're talking about. Let's know. Let's know the true word of God. Let's endeavor to fill ourselves with his word and seek his help. And that's my final point about being enabled. How are we enabled? How was Peter enabled to speak the word boldly? It was by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter and those first 120 believers that he was with in Jerusalem, they were waiting obediently for the Holy Spirit as Jesus had instructed them. They were praying, and they were open to welcoming the Holy Spirit. Lord, enable me is a prayer. It's a prayer of invitation. Lord, enable me. It's a welcoming prayer. It's a prayer that's welcoming the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Welcome the Holy Spirit as your enabler. He is your enabler. When Peter gave that first message recorded in Acts 2, And he began by uh, talking to the crowd about 
the book of Joel, what's he, what was he talking about? He was talking about the Holy Spirit, the power behind what they were witnessing. That's how he opened. He said, let me tell you about this power. Let me tell you about what's happening here. Who's my enabler? It's the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I can tell you, through the book of Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters, they're going to prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, will I pour out the Holy Spirit. So Peter said, listen, first of all, let me tell you about how I'm getting this enabling. And then in Acts 4, after the people prayed, after the people prayed, we read this at the end of Acts 4, Acts 4, 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They were enabled by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work in concert with our heart. If, if it's our desire to hide the word of God in our heart, to learn the word of God, we can trust the Holy Spirit to enable us to get that word out when we need it. When we pray, Lord, enable us. Make it in your heart an invitation for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to give you his supernatural blessing. You know, dear church, what are we doing if, here if not to be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled to overcome whatever fear you might have? A fear that keeps you from speaking and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with another human being who needs to be brought from death to life. That enabling uh, for you to recall the word of God, the Holy Spirit can help you in that so that it flows out right from you when you need it and he can inspire you to speak. Let's remember that. Remember, it's a divine enabling. And that was a promise. It was a promise. Jesus said, I promise this Holy Spirit. And that promise only happened because Jesus went to the cross. He said, I will send the Holy Spirit after. The Holy Spirit came after Jesus was crucified and then resurrected back to life. So we live in a time that's wonderful. Oh, it's different than those people in the old covenant? Does that really, do we really get that? Does that penetrate us? Do we understand that? We live in a time where the spirit of the living God has been freely given. The Bible describes it as being generously given. The Holy Spirit poured out. And that happened because Jesus, he first went to the cross.